0: Well, I figured I needed to wear my uniform this morning because all you kids are so good you never see cops. Is that right? No one's ever got a citation or anything like that in this room. No, of course not. I won't ask for a raise of hands. I think that one of the common uh, discussions that that I have with people when they find out I'm a cop, you know, is, uh, well, Bob, let me tell you about this ticket I got. And then they go about talking about that. And usually, it's kind of funny, usually it's not the... Uh, the, the facts aren't in dispute. Usually, I say, "Well, what did he write you for?" Well, he wrote me for going 45 and a 25. Well, were you going 45 and a 25? Well, well, yeah, but you know. And then from that point on, they go into, "Well, it was the way he got off his motorcycle. He had this kind of silly grin on his face, and and he could act like he was enjoying himself, you know. And then they go into an attack on the officer, which sometimes is deserved. You know, we had a guy. I won't tell you his last name, but his first name was Joe." And uh, he was kind of a weird guy. You know, he kind of got a, a joy out of enforcement, and uh, he, he's no, no longer with us, but uh, uh, he used to do something like this. He worked on one of our freeway cars, and, and when he'd pull over somebody in the early morning, he worked the morning watch, because he liked to get those real high speeds, you know, up to 100 miles an hour or so, because when they're over 100, uh, we usually put him in jail, you know. Uh, that's kind of serious. And so Joe would pull someone over for going 100 miles an hour, and he'd come sauntering up to the car, and he always smoked a cigar. And he'd come up to the car, and he'd take a deep drag on his cigar and blow it in the guy's face, kind of like, you know. And he'd have his helmet kind of cocked on the back of his head, and he'd say, Good morning, sir. May I see the driver's license you used to have? <laughs> no, Joe, that's not good, you know. Don't do that, you know. It, we got so many letters of complaint about him, we finally, you know, got him out of that role. Well, police work is is, uh, is really a lot different than you may think it is because, you know, you watch you watch uh, the TV programs occasionally, you know, Hill Street Blues or Chips or something like that, and you think that's what police work is like. Wrong. <laughs> you know, quite often they're really far from the truth. For instance, uh, there was a program a few years ago called SWAT. Remember that? And uh, they shot somebody every week, you know. And we have we have the original SWAT team in L.A. We, we originated that phrase that stands for Special Weapons and Tactics. And uh, they have, you know, machine guns and, and special kinds of tactics they use, repelling and coming out of helicopters, down ropes, and all that kind of stuff. And that's where we got the, the, the term SWAT. Well, our SWAT team last year in 1984 was called out over 200 times to make what we call uh, – extraordinary entries. Sometimes they use explosives to get into a house or uh, to get in a barricaded suspect situation. And over those 200 cases, they only shot people twice. So, you know, it's a little different than on TV. We think that in a way we failed when we have to shoot somebody. We like to go and take them alive. We think that that is really courageous if you take a guy with a gun without having to kill him. That's, you know, you're really sharp if you do that. So what I'm trying to say is sometimes it's not quite the same it is on TV. I I have to tell you this, too. Sometimes we really make goose. Uh, We don't always do things right. We get a little excited. For instance, I remember a case I was involved in where I was working dope. And uh, uh, we had this particular house staked out, and we were trying to build what the courts refer to as probable cause uh, to be able to go and make an arrest in there. And if you have probable cause, there are certain occasions where you can go in a house in an emergency situation even without a warrant, and it's legal. If you have what we call an emergent situation, one that you have to take immediate action on we got these guys coming out of this house. When they went in, they were, as we say in the, the colloquial of, uh, of of narc cops, they were hurting. Uh, they were obviously uh, heroin addicts, and you know their their noses running and they were scratching. And you can see they were they were not feeling good. They had the classic symptoms of. Of needing a, a fix or a shot. So we saw them go in this place and they were in there for a while and they came out and they were feeling real cool, man. They were going down the street and so we said, hey, you know, that that is uh, giving us some probable cause to talk to them. So we talked to them, stopped them, and they were on parole and so they wanted to cooperate with us. and So they told us what was going on. They said, yeah, the guy has some dope, but he's almost out of it. Uh, and uh, other guys are coming, you know, in, in the morning and they, the guy only has a little bit of a stash left. So if you're going to get him... Uh, with some of his stash you better go in right now so we didn't have enough time to get a warrant so we decided we'd just go up and door knock the place so we went up and door knocked it and and some kids answered the door and I went in the front door and and I met my partner coming in the back door and the guy we were after was in the bathroom and so we we met in the hallway and and I very quietly tried the door it was locked and so I I went like this to my partner which meant to him on three we're going to kick the door so we got one, two and we both had our backs against the wall and bam we kicked in the door now, the hypes that we had talked to before had given us kind of a schematic of the house. They'd kind of given us a drawing of the house. So we knew what it was like. The only problem was they weren't good draftsmen, you know what I mean? And not only that, they were a little bit loaded. And so the, the bathroom, they had drawn a lot bigger than it actually was. a very small bathroom. I mean, it was just enough space between the, the toilet and the sink for some one person to stand. I mean, it was very small, you know. Now, when the door went flying in, the guy had the top down on the commode and he was sitting there giving himself fix. He had his belt around his arm and he had his belt in his teeth and he actually had the needle in his arm. When we kicked in the door, the doorknob came and hit him right in the nose. We didn't mean to do that, but, I mean, it did it, you know. And, and uh, it, he he dropped the outfit he had in his hand and he had a, a handkerchief on his lap with several bindles of heroin that fell on the floor and uh, they're kind of the, the caps were kind of bouncing around on the floor. And, and so I just... I have to tell you, I just got kind of a strobe shot of what had happened because the impact of the door knocked out the light. Now this is all happening at once. You know, bam! The door goes flying over him, and I see this narcotics bouncing on the floor, and the light goes out. And so I dove for the floor, and I got six capsules of heroin, and I got them in my pocket real quickly. And I'm on the floor. My partner and this guy are fighting over me. Now you got to get the picture. There are three guys in a room where there's only supposed to be one guy. In the dark, okay, bad. And these guys are stepping on me and everything. And finally, uh, my partner be- gets a little excited, and and he begins yelling, "He's flushing it! He's flushing it!" And now my partner didn't know that I had some of the evidence. You know, six captures is as good as ten, but he didn't know that. And apparently, the guy did get some in it and was flushing it in the dark there. You know, and my partner heard it, flush, you know, and he so he got all excited. Now, for some reason, even though I had the evidence. I got excited. You know, these guys are stepping on me and my partner's screaming, he's flushing it. So I got up and I got involved in the fight. You know, now there's three guys hitting one another. And uh, the two cops on the outside of the house, I forgot to tell you, we asked for a backup to watch the windows in case anybody came out the window. They heard all this boom, bam, boom. And and then they heard, he's flushing it. And then they heard more, you know. And so these two guys on the outside, they couldn't contain themselves. So they came running in and they jumped into this dark room. Now it really was a it was like Keystone Cops you know there there are five guys in a room where there's only supposed to be one in the dark and everybody's hitting one another and and I tell you I took some hits that day I know didn't come from that poor hype I mean they felt like cop hits you know what I mean and and so and so I said I said wait a minute choke him out choke him out and I heard I said pull him out where we could see what's going on here and he pulled him out in the hall it was my partner they choked him out. Unconscious, You know, just choked them all the way up. Well, I just said, that's a true story. I tell you that to show you that, you know, it's not always as smooth and nice and as effective. And the cops always aren't doing things right. You know, we goof too. And uh, that was one of those cases. Uh, today I want to talk to you about a particular verse in the Bible. Would you open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians, the 16th chapter? The last chapter in the book of uh, the letter of Paul to the Corinthians And it's kind of a, you know, my my pastor John MacArthur kind of refers to this as a mini message. It has five points all in one verse. Four, I'm sorry, I said five. You take verse 14 and it has the fifth point. That's where I got the five from. We're going to discuss uh, verse 13 of 1 Corinthians 16. And let's just read it very carefully Be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men. Sorry about that, ladies. And be strong. Okay, there are four things that it says. And I'd like to kind of take that apart and address the issue that we're talking about in this series of chapel meetings. And uh, Russ has asked me to address specifically the impact of, of this cosmos system on us. The, the media, drugs, crime, you know, everything that's happening. And, you know, just to illustrate what is happening... I brought some some photographs that you you aren't going to be able to see right now because I know most of you are too far back there, and I can't find a way to prop it up here anyhow. But uh, these are photographs of a what we call a rock house, okay? And I invite you after chapel to come up and take a look at these pictures, and you'll see the incredible sophistication of the barricading and some of the electronic systems and everything that are used in this rock house now this particular one we could not use the battering ram on some people say why do you use a tank in police work why that's terrible and my answer is because we can't call in airstrikes no no that's not really no that, that, that's not the real answer the reason we are not using other more conventional systems is because of what you see here when we when you get a chance to get up here and see the for instance the barricading on the door you'll you will see Two eight by 8 beams at the top, an 8 by 8 beam at the bottom with pipes going into the subflooring against this door. We've taken away some, one of the beams so we could take a picture of the door, but you can see the bracket where it was. Another beam in the center of the door, a total of four beams holding that door and barricading it. It's solid oak. On the other side of it, it's a double door. There's a steel plate door. I mean, there's no way you can get through that. In fact, in this case, we couldn't even use a RAM because they know we're using a RAM now, and so they're coming up with other systems. They barricaded the midroom. It was actually a kitchen that they barricaded in this way. And in order to get to the kitchen, you had to step through the front door. You go through a buzzer. Once you talk through a little electronic device that you'll see there, you come into the main room, and there's two guys sitting at a round table with Uzis on you, automatic weapons. And if they let you go to the, approach this door that's doubly barricaded, then you have a hole next to the door. You put your hand around so you can't even see the person that's given you the stuff. It goes through a baffling system so you can't even see the, uh, the, the fingers of the person. You can't later identify them as selling you the dope. You buy the dope that way through this door, through this barricaded system. And they had it in the center of the house because the, that house had a house right next to it. And so we couldn't get the ram in there to, to use the barricade against that door. And so what we did is, as you'll see, I'll have to explain it to you, but one of the pictures, you'll, it looks like that one of those doors has had a bandsaw, just saw a big kind of a square out of it. And you'll see on the other side of that hole a steel door that's been somehow forced. Well, what happened there, we used an explosive. We used what we call a C4 linear plastic explosive charge. And it, it looks like it, it cut a hole with like a bandsaw, but it's actually an explosive charge. It just blew a hole in there and blew open the, the, the inside door. The only problem was we blew all the windows out of the house next door, you know. And, you know, it was kind of interesting. When I began making arrangements for having those windows replaced, the man, and we were in a predominantly black area, the man said, you do not have to come and repair my door. Thank God you finally came. We are sick and tired of this kind of thing going on in our neighborhood. We have overwhelming support in the communities. And and, uh, I had to literally uh, talk this guy into letting me replace the windows in his house. And, of course, we did. But, but there was tremendous cooperation, and, and they said, boy, we're you know, use anything. If you want to use explosives, do it. If you need a battering ram, do it. Get these dope dealers out of our community. And it's kind of gratifying to see that, that 90% of the people, regardless of what community you're in, what ethnic or racial, whatever, they are for getting dope dealers out of their communities. They're terrified by them, and they, they want relief. But uh, this is kind of the, where we're coming from in today's world. We're coming from a world where cocaine is, is the common drug that's used on high school campuses, it's used by professional people, uh, baseball players, football players, you know that. It's, you know, drug use is getting kind of accepted as okay in our society. And instead of calling people drug addicts, what do we call them now? We say, well, uh, uh, Steve, he he recreationally uses drugs. We don't call him a dope addict. You know, that that puts a bad label on him. And so we're very sophisticated. They recreationally use drugs. And, And it's just kind of okay, you know. Uh, to the point where uh, we set up a, a video camera, and, and I showed this to some of the pastors at Grace Church just so they would see what we're dealing with in the valley. We set up a video camera across a barranca from one of the big high schools in the valley, one of the nice kind of upper income areas of the valley. And, uh, and here's all these middle class, uh, typical American kids coming out at nutrition time, okay, at nutrition time, and instead of eating an apple. They're, they're taking out their bintle and fluffing up their coat, and getting out their straws sniffing the cocaine at nutrition time at an American high school. We do live in a very, very unusual time in America's history, a time when, uh, as one guy right off the street put it, he said, you know what cocaine is? And I said, what? He said, it's God's way of telling us we're too rich. We don't know how to spend our money. Now, that was a godless guy that said that. And, you know, there's a lot of truth to that. You know, we're looking for ways just to feel good and... And we're, we're not feeling good naturally because as a, as, a, as a people, we're out of touch with God. And so naturally, we need artificial ways to try to make up the difference. And of course, the artificial ways work for, for a short time period. But they don't really bring us into to a right relationship with God. And therefore, the, the hurt exists and the hurt stays and, and things get worse. Well, drugs are just one phase of what we're going through. Uh, you know, you are, you are literally bombarded with mind pollution whether you know it or not. Mind pollution. And now i want to get into this verse and talk about what I mean. I'm going to enlarge on this a little bit as far as what I meant by that phrase, mind pollution. Number one, that verse says, be on the alert. That's the opposite of being stuporous and kind of just existing and not being aware of what's going on around you. It means know what's going on around you. Know about your environment. Be informed. Know that this exists in our society, this condition that I've just illustrated to you right now. Know that when you turn on your TV, you're bombarded with all kind of mind pollution. It's now okay to, to use profanity, not only in films, but on TV. I'm beginning to see it on TV. Just the last two years this has occurred. It's always been kind of remote You know, they go, on TV usually. But now they're, they're not even on certain channels. They're not even uh, bleeping out the profanity. They're there. Much of the explicit sex is there, not just on uh, the cable, which, of course, it's, it's, it's really heavily. Uh, there are certain stations on cable have very explicit sex scenes. You know that. But, but on commercial TV, we're starting to get some of this. And uh, this says we ought to be aware of what's happening. We, we shouldn't be like the frog. And you've heard about that experiment where they put the frog in that little dish and, and kept increasing the temperature of, of the water. And pretty soon the frog was boiled to death. You know, if you take a frog and put him in some hot water, he'll immediately jump out. But if you put him in a a dish and gradually keep the temperature of the water going up, they've proven that he'll stay in there and literally roast to death, cook himself to death. And you know that's happening to us? Many many of us as Christians are not aware of what's happening around us. I I want you to know that in police work, we consider that an essential part of our strategy, to be aware of what's happening in the communities. So much so that the LAPD has two what we call intelligence divisions. That's all they do is gather information. What is happening? We have undercover officers out on the street monitoring vice conditions, narcotic conditions. We have undercover officers on the high school campuses. We have to do that. We have to know what's happening in the high school campuses. If we don't, we don't realize they've got a drug problem at this school if we don't have someone there to kind of monitor and tell us, hey, there's a drug problem. And guess what? Here are the five people that are the drug dealers. And uh, it's interesting the attitude that some of the uh, young people have. We had uh, uh, a, a local TV station interview some of the student body uh, officers that were elected by their, their, their peers respond to this fact that the LAPD has uh, undercover officers on the campus. And, and they asked the student body president, and he was kind of an intellectual guy. I'm sure he wasn't a Christian guy from the way he talked at least. I don't think he was. And, and they said, what do you think I have an undercover narcs on your high school campus? He said, I don't like it. And then he said something very interesting. But I'd rather have them than the dope dealers. I thought, hey, that's that's insight from a young person. That as much as he disliked that, he realized it was necessary. And he went on to say, I don't like it, but I'm not going to say I'm against it. I represent a large student body. I've talked to a lot of people. And he says, I'm giving you a consensus. He says, maybe some of the people that are dealing don't want him here at all. He said, I'm telling you that most of us, although we don't like it, we know it's better than having dope dealers. And so... Yeah, we support it. Very interesting. What I'm trying to illustrate is the LAPD thinks it's very necessary. I've tried to work undercover a few times. It hasn't worked out too well. I I look too much like a cop, I guess, or or whatever it is. You know, I I just, I don't know how to act right or something. Uh, I remember one, the first time that I uh, tried to work as as an undercover person. I was on a a street corner monitoring pickpocketers uh, at a a busy intersection during the holiday season where there's a lot of pickpocketers out, you know, and people who lift things out of purses and out of people's wallets and whatever. And I I had my foot against the wall, and I thought I was being real cool. And I was dressed, of course, in plain clothes. I wasn't dressed like this, you know. And and yet, this young guy came up to me, and I didn't even realize what he'd said until I had my watch halfway up to my my eye, you know. But he said, "Uh, say, officer, what time is it? (laughs) Anyway, you know, I was all like this before I realized, wait a minute, the guy's calling me officer, you know. I looked at him, I said, you wise guy. And he said, just checking you out, man, you know. <laughs> Another time I went in a pool hall, in a pool hall uh, bowling alley combination. And, and I had some Levi's on and, and a T-shirt. And I was trying to buy some dope and, and monitoring what was happening in his pool hall. And I had my knees up on the seat in front of me trying to be real cool. And my badge slid out of my Levi pocket when flying across the floor. Now, I didn't get much intelligence in there either, folks. But, you know, we, what I'm trying to illustrate is the LAPD recognizes that it's important to know what's going on. And what I'm trying to tell you, the Bible says we as Christians should be very much aware of what's happening in our society. You should know exactly what's happening. You, you got, I think a good Christian, a, a person who is living by the, by the commands of Jesus Christ, who is following him, has a personal relationship with God is interested and will be informed. They'll they'll read a, a few news magazines and, and, and they'll read some things that keep them current with what's going on. They won't be just living in their own little uh, monistic type of world where they're not aware of the outside world and what's happening. Now, I think you can carry that too far. I, I've had some brothers in the faith come to me and say, Hey, Bob, have you seen this flick? No, I, I, I haven't. I, I don't make a practice of going to movies. I... I may go to one a year. I may go to see Chariots of Fire or something like that. But, but most movies, uh, they're not edifying. Number one, I don't have the time. I have other priorities. And, and uh, quite frankly, most of them, there's subtle things in there that, that work against what I think the Lord wants me to think about. And so I don't go. Well, yeah, but you need to see this one. Well, oh, that one, man, that's terrible. I've heard, I've heard even some non-Christian guys at work say thats that's got a lot of explicit sex and a lot of bad language and, and, and all this and that. What are you doing seeing that for? Well, Bob, we we need to know what our young people are seeing today. That's a cop-out. That's not what this means. Uh, I I know what's in those movies by just reading some of the reviews. You don't have to go see them and get all this stuff put into your brain. You know what I do when they bring me a a new type of pornography that's just hit the streets? Maybe it's some kind of new kiddie porn or some new sadomasochistic thing. And they'll say, hey, chief, uh, we need you to see. I, I, we know you like to be aware of what's going on. And we got this book here that will just show you the latest of the perversion and how bad it's gotten. And you know what I'll say? I don't want to see it. Well, yeah, but you're in charge of all this. You, you know, we're in charge. You, you need to know. You need to give some direction. I'll say, why don't you just describe just as briefly as you can what it contains? I don't want to see the pictures. It's a little easier for me to keep those words from coming back in my mind. But once you've seen a picture, it burns itself into your mind. And you know, I've just decided. There's a lot of things I don't have control over that gets into my mind because of the society that we live in. But those things I can control, I do. And I encourage you to do the same. I encourage you to turn that channel. Or put down that book. And don't look at that picture. You know, you control that. And your mind is... is is the greatest computer ever made. Man will never equal the brain. They say they're getting close, but baloney. There's no way will they be able to replace your brain with a computer. God's the inventor of the brain. Man will never equal that. And it's an incredibly marvelous computer. And, And you know, once things are in there, it's kind of hard to get them out. But he says, nevertheless, be alert. And then he balances out by saying, nevertheless, stand firm in the faith. Now, even though you need to be aware of what's happening in our world today, you need to know that there are such things as rock houses. So that when you deal with people that, I know I heard you mention you go to some of these camps, you'll know what some of the kids up there have dealt with and a little bit of what they're facing. And some of the high school kids in your church are facing on their campuses where the dope is being sold. You need to know that. But on the other hand, he says, stand firm in the faith. Now, there's a parallel verse that we need to look at. Just keep your place there and turn over to 2 Thessalonians 2.15. That phrase, you know, the Bible is the best commentary on itself. And that phrase, stand firm, is is a significant phrase that's kind of opened up a little bit in Second Thessalonians 2, 15. Here he's talking about the end times and he's talking about a falling away that occurs. That's, that's the context. I, I don't have time to go into that, but I'm sure you're aware of that. And right at the at the kind of the end of that treatise of talking about the falling away of the apostasy, he says in verse 15, So then, brethren, now he tells us what we're to do when things are deteriorating around us as they are, so then, brethren, and I might add in cistern, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. You know what he's really saying? Here's the standard right here. Practically speaking, you see, they didn't at that particular time they didn't coin the phrase Bible or the word Bible so he says hold to the traditions which were taught to you by us whether by word of mouth or by letter that, that was actually those the letters in the Bible so he's saying this should be the standard now I, I have a son who is a graduate of Biola and uh, that's before the master's college I might add and uh, he, uh, he used to do something like this to me he'd say dad it's, it's kind of like this And I say, what what are you saying? Well, here's us Christian guys. Here's the worldly guys. And he says, it's kind of like we kind of watch them. And we kind of say, well, we have to be above them and and live like God wants us to live. But instead of looking at God sometime, instead of looking at his principles, sometimes we have a tendency to keep our eyes on the relevancy of our behavior, or or the relativeness, rather, of our behavior to the world. And as we see the non-Christian guys... We don't realize it, but they're going downhill. And guess what? As long as we keep that uh, relativeness between them and us, we're there now where they were ten years ago. Where pagans were ten years ago. That's where we are today. You know what? I think he had something there. And that's why the Bible here is saying, hey, don't do that. Don't stand firm to a relative uh, morality. And as long as we're better than the world around us, we're okay. Because guess what? The world's going to hell, literally. And they're on the skids. And I've seen this degeneration just in my time. You know, I'm, I'm 52 years old, and I've seen a lot of changes, a lot of changes. I remember movies where, you know, in, in Gone with the Wind, that was considered a hardcore porno-type movie because of some suggestive things that were said. And then he said, frankly, Scarlett, I don't give a, you know. And he uttered one word, and they said, that is a terrible movie. And, I mean, even the world was upset about that. The pagan world was upset about that movie. And many of them said that should be censored. And it was one of the first movies that had a curse word in it, and it was considered a a horrendous thing. And, you know, because of that, during that time frame, there were still people that swore. But guess what? They didn't swear in public. You know, even the, the tough guys at school, the guys that I played football with, and some of them were really pagan, just flat out, you know, far away from God as you could be. But guess what? Even they kind of cleaned up their act when they got around, for instance, ladies or or, or teachers or anybody else. They, they wouldn't swear. They would, you know, just swear kind of around the guys a little bit. And then it was kind of keep your voice low, you know, and the guys swearing and everybody, you know, kind of an unusual thing. Now, I, I, just to give you a comparison, I was standing in a Knott's Berry Farm uh, lineup to get into the chicken house. OK, and what kind of people go to Knott's Berry Farm? Kind of middle America. Right. And here we're standing in this line of about 150 people. And I heard up and down the line, I heard people just using... God's name in vain and curse words and four letter words that begin with F. I mean, right there at Knott's Berry Farm, in front of everybody, in front of kids and everybody just kind of cursing away. You see, if we keep our eyes on the standard the world has, guess what? We're going to be today where the world was just a few years ago. And God says, don't do that. It shouldn't be a relative thing. You stand firm. Don't give an inch. We assign our vice officers to a vice assignment, and we have a rotation policy. We only let them work vice 18 months. You know why? Over a long period of time, we've seen something very interesting happening. We see a six-month period of shock. People do that? They can't believe it. They thought that, thought that was just exaggerated in, in porno movies. People do that, and they're shocked. The second six-month period of time, they're ambivalent. Well, people do that. They don't have any feelings either one way or the other. The third six-month period of time, and we actually see this happening, they begin saying, well, whatever turns them on. In other words, it's okay for them. Now they're accepting it as okay. There's no longer shock. There's not even ambivalence. There's acceptance for them. That's when we transfer them out. You know why? What we found, this actually happens. Pretty soon, they begin to say, I think I'll join them maybe I'm the only weird one. Everybody's doing this. And our own police officers begin to be eroded morally to the point where they get right down in the pit in the mud with everybody else. And so we transfer them out. And we put them in an assignment where they get some more positive contacts and meet some regular people. I think that's that principle, again, illustrated. I I call it, I was talking with Russ before, I I call it the barroom syndrome. He said, and Russ looked at me. Barroom? You going to talk to our kids about barrooms? <laughs> well, you know, because of my work, I've had to go in a lot of barrooms in my life. On duty, of course, <laughs> and, and, and in an official capacity. Not there to go in and drink. I don't go in and drink, of course. But but I've had to go in some barrooms in, in my time. And one thing I've always noticed, they're always dark. You know, the lights are low. I, that reminds me of a verse. You, you remember of a statement in the Bible? How does it go? Men love darkness rather than light. Why? Because their deeds are evil. And you go in a bar and it's dark, and at first you can't see. You almost have to wait a minute. And pretty soon images start appearing, and you can see a little bit. And then you stay for a while, and you're, you're making your bar inspection or whatever you've had to do, and you can see pretty good. And by the time you get through the inspection and, and talking to the bartender and making sure that he's not serving any drunks or, or that he's not doing anything else illegal by the state of California, then you get ready to go out, and, 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 you're, and you're really seeing everything pretty good. And you don't realize how dark it is until you open the door and all of a sudden there's a blinding and you actually once again you have to stand again and kind of wait a minute because it's such a shock to your eyes to see this bright sunlight. And what I'm trying to say is you get used to the darkness and you begin thinking it's not so dark in here. And you don't know how dark it is until you're exposed to the sunlight of day. And you know what this word is saying here? This is saying Stand firm, not to the relativeness of the day, or not even to your own ideas of what is right and wrong, but make sure you stand in the bright sunlight of God's truth. That's this book right here. Only then can you realize just how dark it is around you. We need that. I need that, especially as a police officer. I need daily exposure to the Word of God. I need it desperately. Number three, act like men. Now, now, believe it or not, ladies, this is to you, too, because once again, the Bible is its best commentary on itself. And, and there are some verses that I could point. You. I'm just going to give you one just to give you an idea of, of what it means. Much of the time when uh, in that particular culture, when they use that phrase act like men, they were referring to a particular characteristic that you can also emulate, ladies. This admonition is to you, too. And one of the verses, and you don't need to take time to to look at this, but just write it down if if you want to check me out. out. 1 Samuel 4.9, where it says, Take courage and be men. You see, you'll see that running through the Bible where being courageous and acting like a man are kind of synonymous. And so when he is saying here, act like men, what he's really saying is, act maturely and courageously. You see, those two words... Uh, being associated with that phrase, acting like men through the Bible. You have to trust me on the, on the other one. There are verses where maturity and bravery or courage are, are really what he's trying to say here. And, of course, that can apply to you. You know, being courageous is, is, uh, is not the elimination of fear. I, I really found that in, in my work. I, I'm afraid a lot. In fact, last night I was afraid. We came up on a shots fired call. There had been about 15 shots fired, and there were some gang members. Uh, it was down in South Central Los Angeles, and I got out of my car, and the other policemen were getting out of their car. And I was in uniform, and uh, I, I do this about once a month. I go out with the guys and actually work a night shift with them. That's one of the reasons I wore my uniform in this morning, because I wore it home last night, and I had my suit at the office. And so I'm going to wear the uniform back, and as soon as I get in after talking to you, I'll put my suit back on. But I was out last night with the guys, and, and there were these guys standing out in front of this yard. And as soon as we pulled up, they started splitting. And the officers got some of them over here, and another team of officers coming up the other way, got some more. And and two of them rented the house. And I was right in between. My car came right in between. And so I went after these two guys that went into the house. And and I have to tell you, as as I went into this, it was an abandoned house. It was a place where these gang members were using as as selling dope and doing whatever else they do in these houses. And and, uh, they, they ran into the darkness of that house. And I was right behind them. And I have to level with you. I was thinking as I went through there, see, I forgot to put on my vest tonight. And as I turned the corner and as both of them quickly turned toward me, I didn't know if they were the ones that had the gun or not. It turned out they were not the ones. The ones over on the right side are the ones that had the guns. But I thought I was going after two guys into a house that had a gun, and I have to tell you, I was a little bit uptight. I had some fear. And of course I was cautious. You know, I, I took what cover I could by the side of the doorway. And I had my light on them and I said, now come around and get get your hands behind your head where I can see and get out here. And they did. And and it turned out to be okay. And they didn't try to shoot me. But I have to tell you, I was thinking, is this the night that I'm going to buy the farm? Is this the night that I'm going home? You know, Are these guys going to shoot at me? And and, and there was some fear. I I think the key thing is, in police work, as as in this business of, of being obedient and having a lifestyle that is pleasing to God, we have to overcome the fear that we have. And do it anyhow Now last night I had some fear But but I did what I had to do And I got them out Even though I was afraid And I don't think they knew I was afraid Because they they complied But what I'm trying to illustrate is this When we live like God wants us to live We're going to take Some criticism We're going to take ridicule We're going to be quite often focused as, As being different than the rest of the world Because guess what We are We should be and because of that, we're going to be uncomfortable, and we're going to feel a lack of acceptance, and fear is gonna kinda to, going to start coming into our life, and boy, I need acceptance, and if I continue being like this, people aren't gonna understand and, and and they won't like me, and maybe I better compromise a little bit and, and do whatever they're doing at the time, so I'll have some more acceptance, and later then I'll share my faith. And of course, our testimony is eroded, and we give in these principles that we believe in and we're not courageous and as a result we're not affected now notice the progression here this is almost like it's inspired you know first of all be on the alert that's meant to be kind of funny of course it's inspired be aware of what's going on number two stand firm and in order to stand firm you're gonna to have to be courageous you're gonna to have to act like men you you can't give in You can't say, because I'm taking a little heat here for standing firm, I'm going to give in. You're going to have to stand alone sometime. And then he says, be strong. And, of course, that's right in line with what he says. Be courageous. Actually, John MacArthur tells me, I'm not a Greek student, but he says that that phrase, be strong, actually is a passive uh, tense indicating that you're to be strengthened. In other words, the strength doesn't come from you. Actually, probably a better translation would be, be strengthened. Recognize that to be courageous, to stand firm, you're going to need some help from outside. That was a lesson that came hard to me as a young police officer. I wanted to establish myself and get some credibility with my peers. And one day... uh, I became aware of uh, a guy that was selling some dope. And I was always interested in narcotics enforcement. I wanted to get out of this radio car and, and, and be a dope cop, you know. And one of the ways they said you can do that is you make a, some good narcotics arrest. And so I began educating myself as to symptoms and, and behavior and paraphernalia and all that. And so I, I started to get, uh, develop a little narcotic expertise. And I was aware of this one particular guy, as I, as I said. And one day I, I was passing by his, his house at Avenue 18 in Albion in, in uh, uh, Lincoln Heights. And uh, I was about a half a block up the street. And as I as I passed his house, I saw what apparently was a narcotic deal actually going down. I saw him out of his house and handing something to this guy in the car or getting something from him and then going back into the house. And I figured he either just gave him the dope or he's going back in the house to get some dope and he just took the money from it. In any case, I wanted to get closer. And so I, I quickly went around the block. And in going around the block, I had plenty of time to ask for my backup. I had a... Uh, a backup officer that was just, uh, I just had coffee with him in Avenue 22 in Broadway. He was only just a couple blocks away. And I know all I had to do is pick up the microphone and on the TAC frequency, ask for him to back me up on this, which I had been trained to do. I should have done that at that point. But I didn't. You know what I was thinking? I'm going to do this myself. I'm going to establish a little reputation here of single-handedly arresting this dope dealer. And so I went around the block and... I parked my car out of sight, and I took off my police hat so they wouldn't see a police hat sticking around the corner. And I got up next to a bush and I looked around the corner and I waited. And, and sure enough, the car was still sitting there. And pretty soon, the guy that I knew was a dope dealer came out of the house and he stood on the porch and he kind of looked up and down the street. And I drew my head back in real quickly, and then I peeked around again. And, and he apparently didn't see me and he thought it was clear. And he started off and I could see he was holding something in his hand. I thought, gee, I got him! Great! I didn't even even search for him. he's not in his house. He's in between the house and the car. Fantastic! And I took off running. And I got almost up to him and the guys in the car yelled, "Ah, the heat or the fuzz or something, you know. And this guy whooped around, he saw me and he ran back to the house. And he got up on the porch and I caught him on the porch. And I grabbed him and I'm trying to get the dope away from him. And he's taking a couple pokes at me. And I finally got my armor up around his shoulders and brought him up against me. And about that time, the two guys from the house had run up behind me. And then three people came out of the house. Now there's five people, and I'm trying to hold on to this guy. And one of the guys, it turned out later, I found out it was his brother-in-law, picked up a chair on the porch and was trying to hit me over the head with his chair. And uh, that was kind of frightening. You know I, you know what I'd do? I'd, I'd get his head around between me and, and the guy with the chair, you know. And So he'd kind of stop, you know. And uh, finally, uh, I really got frightened because somebody jumped on my back. It was the lady of the house. She came out and jumped. I found out later it was his mother. And... Uh, she jumped on my back and she was scratching me and everything and these other guys were trying to hit me and, and then uh, the thing that really got me frightened I felt someone pulling on my gun I thought oh no man if they get my gun they may shoot me and it's amazing what fear will do to you you know adrenaline just kind of flowed through my body and I, and I whipped out this thing that we call a sap it's a, it's a leather device with some lead shot inside it and uh, I began using it I'm hitting everybody you know mother and children whoever was around I mean I <laughs> And I was, I was frightened I, I thought I was about ready to, to check out there you know and so uh, uh, the guy with the, the the chair I hit him and knocked him unconscious and and I knocked a couple of other people unconscious and I accidentally I didn't really mean to do this but I was trying to get the guys out from behind me and I and I hit his mother in the in the jaw with my elbow and I knocked her through the banister off the floor <laughs> and the porch rather and and uh, and then a strange thing happened you know uh, uh the neighbors had heard all this commotion and they came out and they didn't see the initial part of the fight. They didn't see people pulling my gun and, and getting me getting the worst of it. All they saw was a, a middle-aged lady go flying through a banister and off on the floor and, and another guy uh, unconscious on the porch and, and another guy over here kind of crawling away holding his head with blood coming from it and, and, and they're thinking police brutality. You know, what, what's this cop beating people around like that for? And uh, so all of a sudden I, I'm surrounded and I, and I get two people in the police car And they begin kicking the windows out of the police car. And I realized, I need help. And I picked up the mic, finally, you know. And 11L-93, Officer Needs Help, Avenue 18 in Albion. And that, by the way, is the ultimate of all calls. You know, when when you see three or four police cars all going at once with their red lights and sirens, I'll bet you thought they were going to the nearest Winchell's Donut, and the last one there buys, (laughs) right? That's not really the case, really. The, the real situation is, watch this now, the real situation is, that's an officer needs help, probably. I mean, that is the ultimate call. We, we really drop everything. We have three levels of assistance. You ask for a backup, that's one. you want, one car. You ask for assistance, you want two or three cars. You want the world, you ask for help. <laughs> I mean, that's a key word. You, we use that very carefully. Well, some officers were there and, and, and bailed me out, of course, and, and, and I didn't die. <laughs> but, you know, uh, that taught me a lesson. By the way, I lost the evidence Somebody took it back in the house and flushed it during all this carnage and <laughs> fighting and everything. And uh, there was no case. In fact, uh, uh, they took me to, to a civil case for, for hurting people, you know, and I had to defend myself. turned out it was all right because uh, fortunately there was – I didn't think there was anybody that saw what originally happened. There was one neighbor that saw the whole thing. And fortunately she came forward and said, "Ah, oh, the officer was really in trouble. They were getting the best of him. They were trying to get his gun. And so that, you know, it got me out of trouble. But for a while – Everything just was really bad there. And, you know, I learned a very important lesson. When you try to say, I'll do it myself and I can handle this, guess what? Not only in in police work, but in the Christian life especially, we need the Lord. We need to say, Lord, I can't do this. I can't stand firm. I'm going to be like this if it's not for you. I need to understand your word. I need your presence in order to be courageous and stand alone in the midst of a decaying world. I need your presence. You've got to go with me. If if you don't, I'm helpless. Oh, God loves to hear that kind of prayer. You see? God loves to say, since you've humbled yourself, I'm going to exalt you. In fact, that's what the Word of God says, doesn't it, in the book of Peter? Humble yourself so at the proper time you can be exalted. God loves the prayer of, of a sinner that Beats his breast and says, Be merciful to me, God. Listen. I want to share one thing before I lead you in the closing prayer. I'm watching my clock very carefully. I realize I have one minute to go. Maybe a minute and a half, okay? It's not important as a police officer for me to pass on rules. To my subordinates. We've tried that. And I was discussing that in depth with, with Russ. And I'm sorry we haven't been able to address this even a little bit more here in this chapel service. Maybe the next time we can talk about that. But years ago, we developed some principles. The LAPD developed some principles. And based on those principles, we developed a manual. If you want to call it a, a, a rule book of behavior. Unfortunately, A few years ago, I'm talking about a few years ago, I'm talking about about 20 years ago, we only passed along the manual, and we didn't talk about the principles and values anymore. You know what's happening? We're having police officers now reject those rules and challenge us and take us to court and unionize and say, we're not going to live by those so-called professional rules because we don't believe in them. And you know why they don't believe in them? They don't know why they exist. They don't understand the principles behind the rules. And that's been our fault. Management. We've communicated rules. Don't do this. Don't do that. In this case, do this. We've given them orders without reasons. You know, in your lifestyle, in this whole process that I've described this morning of being on the alert and standing firm, using this as a standard, and being courageous in that standing firm, standing alone when necessary, and being strengthened by the Spirit of God so you can be courageous and stand alone. In this whole process, you need to live by the principles in the Word of God and not a rule book. You need to live your Christian faith in the workplace, wherever God puts you, because you love Jesus. And because you agree with Him, with these, these principles, you can say with the psalmist, I love your laws, I love your precepts, I love your book, and you know what's gonna happen? When you and I have that attitude, we won't need rules. We won't need someone to tell us, now now, don't do this, now now you must do this, and if you go to the master's college, you gotta be here, you gotta do this, and a very structured set of rules, you won't need those. In this process I've talked about this morning. We need to get into this book. We need to get to know not only the principles, but we need to intimately get to know the author of these principles. And out of our love for him, and out of our agreement with him, oh, I love this book, our behavior will begin to express itself in a way that is pleasing to the Master. God bless you. It's good to be with you. I want to just leave you with one verse from a paraphrase and it goes like this living in a warped and diseased world and shining there like lights in a dark place for you hold in your hands the very word of life let's pray our father we do love your precepts your commands how sweet they are as we chew them and as we digest them, how good they are, how nourishing they are. Father, teach us your ways. Lord, I want to be the man you want me to be more than anything else. And I pray for these brothers and sisters who are here out of a desire to learn of your ways and to learn of you and to prepare themselves for that special mission you have for them. God may all of us together say more than anything else we want to be pleasing to you we want to be obedient we want to glorify and worship you through our lives in Jesus name Amen